1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: The pandemic brought to the fore a group of workers deemed essential frontline healthcare workers, restaurant employees, slaughterhouse workers and the like, who often faced a difficult choice between risking their health to work or foregoing income that they couldn't afford to do without. Often they had to work even though they couldn't afford health insurance or indeed healthcare themselves if they got sick, another sign of the inadequacy of our healthcare arrangements. How did the pandemic transform workers and work? welcome to international horizons a podcast of the ralph bunch institute for international studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues my name is john torpey and i'm director of the ralph bunch institute at the graduate center of the city university of new york we're fortunate to have with us today jamie mccallum a professor of sociology at middlebury college in snowy vermont He has just published his third book, Essential, How the Pandemic Transformed the Long Fight for Worker Justice, which came out just in 2022. He's also author of Worked Over, How Round the Clock Works, Killing the American Dream from 2020. And his first book was called Global Unions, Local Power, The New Spirit of Transnational Labor Organizing. That came out in 2013. I confess, I've known him for quite a while. He's a PhD in sociology from the CUNY Graduate Center, and we're very pleased to have him with us today. Thanks for being with us,
1: uh, Jamie McCallum. Great. Thanks for having me.
0: Great to have you. So let's start with your current book, uh, Essential, which deals with the effects of the pandemic on work and the labor movement. It mainly addresses how the pandemic cl- played out for workers in the United States, but it also has an international d- dimension. So tell us what it's about.
1: So I started interviewing workers in Wuhan, like immediately. Um, at the time, I was teaching the sociology of labor in at Middlebury, and the students were like, it, what's going on over there? Is it going to be a, an issue? And I was like, maybe, <laughs> you know. So we started talking to people, and um, it was really interesting to get um, to find to try to find people in China to talk to because I don't have any direct connections to workers in China that often. So I started off talking to people that were mostly delivery drivers um, and some healthcare workers, and then when the when the pandemic spread to Italy next, mostly in Lombardy, I talked to workers there again—healthcare, delivery workers, and retail—and um, and then eventually I traced it back to the United States. So originally the, the book had actually a much more global scope, but as the pandemic began roiling in the states, I began focusing more in, in on that. Um, early on the work from home transition was interesting to me just because it seemed like, well, I was working from home personally, and it seemed like that was going to be a fairly significant uh, change in the way people work. And it has been, but, um, ultimately I was drawn to the people who were left to work face to face, um, in Vermont, where I live, I knew a lot of people who were, who were, um, essential workers. I'm on the fire department, so I ended up being on calls with cops and EMS and other healthcare workers who were essential at the time, and it seemed to make more sense for me to focus in it in on that.
0: So, uh, I mean, the pandemic obviously transformed our relationship to work in the ways that you were starting to talk about. Um, you and I, you know, basically were in a position to work from home, or at least in fairly safe kind of uh, arrangements, usually. Uh, But essential workers sort of by definition, didn't necessarily have that kind of safety. And, And as I said in the intro, I mean, one of the most kind of distressing things about the whole thing was the fact that you know, often people couldn't even afford health insurance. So they had to go to work, right. even even though, and, and put themselves obviously at greater risk than you and I had to experience, even right. though they were among the you know ranks of those who couldn't even necessarily f- afford health insurance. So could you right. talk a little bit about that, the exp- way that, exp- you know, uh, affected their experience?
1: Yeah. I mean, so on the health insurance question it was really interesting because, the data in like May of 2020 showed that only about two million or three million people lost health care when they lost their job, and I was like, oh, that's that's not very many. But then when you consider that like 20 million people didn't already have it um, because they never had a job where their employer uh, paid it and they didn't make enough money to buy it themselves, um, you had a slew of people who were facing down a deadly virus with no safety net whatsoever. Um, So the biggest struggles early on in the pandemic were mostly over distancing and PPE. Um, So I did, I surveyed workers, about 750 workers in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. Um, And uh, that was, you know, probably around May 2020. And a lot of workers in hospitals, in nursing homes and retail still don't have access to PPE. Um, like they were still working without they were still working with like raincoats on uh, pulled over their, their their mouths and stuff and um, you know just really makeshift kind of kind of uh, gear. Um, the interesting thing I began to hone in on I suppose was like the union difference. like unions in healthcare made a made a real difference whether or not you had access to, to PPE or not, whether or not you had access to, paid t- paid sick leave and paid time off, and so in the book, I talk about you know a lot about the ways in which we think of workplace safety as the outcome of either you know sort of a macroeconomic oh you can quit your job and that incentivizes employers to um, to do right by you blah 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 or it 's a factor of OSHA where you know government policy gives us safe workplaces and in fact, I think during the pandemic um Like class organizing, class struggle, whatever you want to call it, became essential to people's health. And that was one of the ways that people became safer at work when they organized, when they pressured for, you know, those kinds of things that unions were bringing people, even workers without unions. I mean, a third of the strikes early in the first year of the pandemic were led by workers without unions, which basically never happens in in good times. Uh, It was a remarkable sort of moment of revolt that was, you know, really not captured in the official statistics or snapshot of the pandemic. Like, so if if you looked at BLS data um, for 2020, there was only eight strikes. That's
0: Bureau of Labor Statistics for for those who may not know.
1: Yes, Bureau of Labor Statistics data shows there was only eight strikes in 2020. Well, that's nothing. There's nothing going on then. But when I began talking to people on the phone, I would call up a slaughterhouse worker and we were talking about other things and they would say, oh, by the way, there was a strike yesterday or we walked off the job or we did a sick out or a sit in or whatever it was. And all this stuff kept happening where these small little moments were sort of percolating up uh, in areas where there just wasn't that much, you know, there wasn't. You wouldn't obviously think those were places where people would be organizing. Um, and so to me, that became really interesting and then became a larger focus of the book.
0: So, you know, could you talk about you talk about this pandemic proletariat, which I assume, you know, it means something more than just that, that there's alliteration there. I mean, you have <laughs> this kind of notion that this brought about a certain transformation in workers' consciousness, and yeah. I'm sort of curious if you could expand on that notion and also talk about, you know, the extent to which this is a kind of particularly American phenomenon, or how much is this a global phenomenon, or at least international?
1: Yeah, yeah. so the alliteration was a major part of it. Um, but after that, there's, a, there's a, a better reason. So the what I found that was pretty interesting is that, you know, Americans, and this is, you know, comparatively are less typically like class conscious than let's say the Europeans or even Latin Americans and South Africans for that matter. Um, but during the pandemic, something interesting happened in North America. And that is that workers in different industries across other kinds of like demographic cleavages, race, class, gender, age, age, Status, status, occupation began to recognize themselves as having a common, um, they had a common role to play, keeping the rest of us safe and alive, and keeping the economy going, etc. So you had a situation where doctors, nurses, janitors in one hospital, morgue workers, delivery drivers who ended up there, retail workers who who sold them groceries after their shift, all like began talking about each other as if they were part of this part of this common group and so in the book i i sort of refer to like um benedict anderson's notion of an imagined community uh this kind of like you know a larger than a a sort of a a collective us larger than this workplace for example Uh, so the kind of thing that scholars refer to as class formation process and That happened in uh, the US in really significant ways. Typically, like in in the US, when we see when organized labor surges, it tends to be like in industries. Like in the 2018, 2019, we had a huge wave of strikes in education, but they were just copycat strikes in one in one sector. These were sort of percolating around in all these different sectors, and to me, that's a really valuable thing because then you get a sense of well, this class formation process uh, is is wide and is driving a wide sort of labor organizing surge. In Europe, what I think was interesting. So I did some comparison comparative research between some essential industries in North America and. Uh, Germany and the UK, um, it's a little bit different. Like the ways that, the ways, for example, that Germans organize uh, unions are in some ways far less confrontational and far less adversarial. They're more powerful and more numerous, but it's not as hard to form a union there or to join one, frankly. It's like you you basically sign up in, in a lot of ways. And so in that environment, Um, unions were simply, uh, yes, they had access to more PPE, they had access to more immediate resources, but in some ways they were less or less organized to like push back or fight back. So, um, you know, Amazon workers in North America created much more, um, of a stir, much more of a sort of a contentious environment in their warehouses. Than did than they did in many other places. Um, can, can, I, faith- can,
0: can I can I can I intervene there? I mean, yeah, you know, uh, the story in Germany, as you know, is that you know, I guess it's above a certain size of the enterprise, but there are these so-called works councils that yeah. involve somebody from the from the you know enterprise, somebody from the union, and somebody from the government. So you know that creates a kind of Uh, you know, a body that has to be persuaded that certain policies are acceptable and that sort of thing. And they're different perspectives, obviously. Um, And I can see how that would moderate, you know, uh, potentially at least moderate working class, you know, hostility or whatever.
1: Right, 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 right. Uh,
0: and so that's interesting. And, you know, maybe you could talk about how that works as compared to the kind of situation we have. I mean, you've started to talk about it, but I think it's important for people to understand that there's this institutional reason for what you're describing.
1: Right. Yeah. So, right. There's good things and bad things about a more social democratic or sort of co-determination model that that some they have in, in Western Europe. Um like you know nursing homes in america were the were the epicenter of the pandemic um and then second was probably meat packing and slaughterhouse and food processing those things were not it was not the same in other places um germany for example iceland which i did some research in um so what's different uh is two things one is that the size of the enterprise matters when it came to COVID and the pandemic like slaughterhouses are much smaller in Germany (laughs) Um, and the lines move much slower which means that when there was a COVID outbreak in a German let's say slaughterhouse they would just shut it down and move production somewhere else and they wouldn't lose as much as they lost in in America where slaughterhouses are are basically the size of football stadiums and um, you just can't shut one down without like destroying some of the food supply in a lot of places. So that, that, that model was one difference. The other one was, um, I think, you know, like American labor law is decent when it comes to workplace safety. It's just that as it is in uh, some parts of Europe, but the sort of access to the law just didn't exist in a lot in a lot in a lot of that time therefore like workers had to defend some degree of safety in the workplace and if you were accustomed to fighting back you were more successful at it than if you weren't like osha in america is actually like the laws are okay but osha didn't do anything during the pandemic they didn't expect any workplaces so workers had to sort of step up and you know Uh, refused to work without PPE or refused to work without a a longer break or whatever it was. And so from people I talked to, I talked to most people in Amazon, for example, um, like Chris Smalls, who was fired from the Amazon warehouse in Staten Island, um, also had a lot to do with the German Amazon warehouse. And it was, you know, he that said, like, despite all the problems with organizing workers in America, uh, the, you know, American ones were much more, Organized and militant in a way to defend certain on-the-job protections than were than they were over there.
0: Interesting. So, I mean, I guess I want to pursue this a little bit more because, as you know, Germany is a place I know a little bit about. And right. <laughs> um, the other thing that you know struck me very much during the pandemic was the different policy approaches, uh, particularly to employment and unemployment. So here, basically, people just suddenly lost their jobs. You know, they were cut off from, you know, a source of income, but also a source of their sense of who they are. Right. Right. Whereas Germany has this program called Kurzarbeit, which means short work. But basically the government says, we'll pay you for, I don't know, full time, even though you're only working 20 hours a week or maybe even nothing, but maintain the connection to that workplace. And I think that you know, makes a huge difference to people to feel like they are somebody. Whereas yeah. if they're suddenly thrown out of work and have no connection to that place where they used to go all the time, it's very disorienting and de- demoralizing. So I wonder if you could talk about that or other yeah. sort of policy differences that made a difference.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, so the one you're talking about, the, the work-sharing program, what we call them work-sharing in America, um, are, we're phenomenally... The difference there was phenomenally significant. So, you know, as you said, American laid off workers, uh, like fired them, basically, they lost their t- their connection to their job. Uh, Europe largely furloughed them. That is important for two reasons. The one you're talking about, which is the kind of like subjective or affective connection to your, your sort of your life, your coworkers, your place of employment where you make a living, all that stuff is important. The other reason it matters a lot is when all of a sudden 6 months later you want to rehire 20 million people. Um, well, it's easier if you just furloughed them. You can just hire them back, right? But if you if you've fired a couple tens of millions of people, then they're all getting they're all applying for new jobs at the same time. So you have kind of You know, economists call it a reallocation uh, problem. And like, so some of the labor shortage in late 2020 was a result of like people had looked for other work. They were not sure if their jobs would come back. Um, Their jobs, sometimes their jobs did come back. They couldn't easily transition back into them. And so that that incredible reshuffling was a really significant difference. The other thing is that America, um, the United States doesn't really have Unemployment insurance, like we have like a patchwork of programs that basically like there's without being cynical at all about it. Like part of the reason part of their impetus is deny to deny uninsurance claims from unemployed workers. And um, when they do pay, it's like a pittance. So like there are some states, mostly red states. That you know where um, I think Florida, Arizona, Missouri are the bottom three, which pay like 20% of their unemployed workers unemployment insurance. Of the people who apply, about 20% qualify. So during the pandemic, um, this was awful. Uh, the other the thing that saved it was that the pandemic unemployment insurance program, the PUA, I guess the, uh, Trump called it. Um, and then Biden extended. Actually, it was really good. Like it really reformed the unemployment insurance system, and people began to get checks who needed them. They they were enough. And it's a kind of program where uh, people were shocked that it was happening. And it's a kind of thing that you know probably should have stuck around, um, or we could at least learned something from that program because you know the I mean you might know a little bit more this, more this than I did, but the CARES Act uh, you know, rivaled any European social safety net program. It was huge. It was an incredible influx of money. And, and some of that money early on, a lot of it was dedicated to unemployment insurance. And it was really, um, from the way we typically compared to Western Europe. So then the PUA compared, it was a much, much better situation.
0: Right, I mean, as you say in the book, there were enormous amounts of money spent, uh, you know, during the pandemic by the federal government to, you know, sort of cushion the shock of all this. Not necessarily yeah. all of it spent in ideal ways, and of course now right. there's a big debate about how much this has to do with the contemporary inflation issue. But right. you know, the inflation problem is a, essentially a global problem, so it's not right. clear <laughs> that what we did during the pandemic was is the cause of the current inflation problem. But, uh, I mean, I think the big one that, you know, has gotten a lot of attention was the extended child tax credit, which, yeah, you know, based on some research out of Columbia suggests that, you know, child poverty declined by some dramatic yeah. amount, 40%, 25%, whatever it was, it was, a, seems to have been a quite big number. So, um, but in any case, I mean, back to the um, sort of the labor movement, I mean, I'm, uh, you know, it strikes me as somebody who doesn't study this, certainly, um, that, you know, labor is kind of having a moment right now. I mean, I don't know if you would agree with that, but it seems to me as a kind of reader of the newspaper on these kinds of issues that, you know, the strikes at Amazon, the the union mobilizations at Starbucks, things like that are, you know, getting people's attention and that labor, the labor movement is in you know, better, uh, I don't want to say odor, but you know what I mean? Uh, Yeah. 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 It's, it's got a better reputation sort of now than it did. And, you know, Biden, I think you talk about this in the book as well, Biden, you know, has presented himself as this kind of pro-union, um, uh, president and, you know, I I mean, what's going on there. And, and (laughs) again, you know, how much is this happening in, in outside the United States as well?
1: Yeah. So the I think what was, what was, what happened in 2020 because essential workers had such a incredible public profile like it was clear to most people that our lives depended on them. You know, and not just healthcare workers, but retail clerks and dri- delivery drivers and food processors and um, you know, all these other folks, uh, teachers after a couple months, um, so I think that gave the American working class a little bit of like a facelift, and the problems, the the answers to problems in the American workplace, like, were dealt with by organized labor, or were dealt with by by disorganized labor in in bad ways, and so I think you know, unions became. Like an answer to a problem like where people like myself have long thought they were the answer, and all of a sudden it became a more popular answer. Um, that was one of the reasons that we're seeing a surge. The other reason is just the like the resentment, frustration, anger, hostility to working through the pandemic without much lasting change to your job. You know, there was a, a pressure valve released in 2021, probably, that kicked off a surge. Um, So, yes, labor is definitely having a moment. I mean, uh, petitions to file union elections are up, I think, 65 percent from the year before the pandemic, which is an enormous thing. The only word of caution there is that, you know, at the 250 Starbucks cafes that have now voted to unionize or more, um, nobody has a contract. Uh, Nobody has a contract to Amazon. Nobody has a contract. Um, at some of the other, more like some some white collar, uh, there's been some online media places that I've organized. They're they're working without a contract. So in some ways, employers have been saying like, look, vote for a union, fine, but nothing changes. You know, go ahead. And actually the Amazon Labor Union has lost a few votes um, since they won a JFK in Staten Island. So I think there's like, there's a moment and I think there's reasons for cautious optimism. But at the same time, If you think labor history, it doesn't really compare. It's like the upsurge in the 30s. It doesn't really compare to the strike wave in the 70s. It's just, you know, in in relation to what it was like five years ago, (laughs) things are looking pretty good. But um, there's still obviously a major, you know, major inroads to go. Biden was pretty good. Um, He was probably the most pro-union president for like a year. That we've had in a a, maybe in my lifetime, Um, but it's a low bar in the United States. It's a pretty low bar. So in, I mean, the international comparison, I guess I would make there is, um, I mean, there has been. uh, I'm trying to think of the places I know. I mean, there was actually a surge in labor unrest or labor organizing in China. I don't know if you've seen the following that news, but uh, sort of Apple factories, other tech factory workers I maybe mean, not tech workers, but like people who produce that stuff in factories um, have been like there's been a wave of militant strikes there. It's pretty different than here because unions are you know, very, very much illegal in most places. Um, but I don't think there's been a similar takeoff, like a grassroots takeoff in parts of Western Europe largely because there's you know, not typically that even in good times. That's, again, not totally the way workers organize in, in large parts of Western Europe. Um, there is a movement afoot to begin organizing uh, Amazon globally, uh, which is really interesting just because the Amazon labor unions um, are pretty new and fairly under-resourced. Uh, But nonetheless, there's a sort of an idea among those folks that, you know, um, organizing this company, wherever it is, is should be on the agenda. And so there's, you know, probably some of that coming down the pike.
0: Right. So uh, maybe as a last question, you know, you sort of use as an epigraph or epigram, I can never remember which one it is, but uh, this famous quotation of Antonio Gramsci's about, you know, we're in this kind of moment when the old is dying and the new has not yet been born. And it's not entirely clear what the new is supposed to be, although we <laughs> probably know what Gramsci wanted it to be. Uh, but it, let's, let's leave the soothsaying out of it and, you know, tell, tell us like what's dying. I mean, I mean, the, the quotation goes on and you title your, I guess, last chapter about, you know, this business about morbid symptoms. Morbid in, symptoms, right. In, in, in the
1: yeah. But what's, what's dying.
0: What, what do you think yeah?
1: I mean I think like well, who knows? I mean what we thought was dying and what may still be dying, I think, is like um a notion that um we can survive and thrive while treating workers like human garbage, basically, which is you know, essentially what we do. I mean you know, laborers are disposable. Um in many parts of the United States and I think that that um, we learned some small lesson that that is probably bad for all of us like you know the other slogan i guess is like an injury to one is an injury to all it became almost statistically clear or true in a way during the pandemic that if you're if you were in a nursing home where workers worked multiple jobs well, they spread COVID throughout the nursing home like workers themselves did. So the same people that were tasked with saving people's lives were also spreading the virus. And um, I think the thing that's dying is that that system, we have a general cultural understanding that it's that it's pretty bad and that it's that it's dire. The what has you know yet to be born, I think it's the other part of the quotation is like what is what the, the answer to the problem? Like what? Can we do about it? In other words, some inching towards a more socialist or social democratic um, political economy. And I think that tension, you know, there's that old saying like, you know, during the crisis, everyone's a socialist. And that's not, you know, true necessarily. But I think the crisis did yield a lot of people who were willing to rethink in radical ways the way our economy is organized. And, um, uh, you know, the public supports unions at a historic rate and is against large corporations at a historic rate on public opinion polls. So that kind of like sentiment and I think, you know, bottom up cultural shift is happening. The real question is like, what can we do about it? like How can we make good on it and solidify some of that in real gains? Um, and there's some reasons to think about it in both. like. I say at the end of the book at one point that, you know, what's most shocking in some ways is like, what hasn't changed? Like we still, we're still fighting at the railroad unions over paid sick days. That's like all they want. Right. And you'd think by now we would have learned that lesson. And a lot of people want them to have paid sick days, but um, you know, you know, play people in, in both parties are, are, some extent arguing against that. So I think there's still an open question about whether or not we can really like, use the labor unrest that is happening to push for larger systemic change.
0: Right. I mean, I'm struck by the fact that, you know, there are positive, you know, developments out there, uh, you know, of the kind that you've talked about, sort of labor having a a moment. Um, There's also clearly morbid symptoms. Um, And but in the end, I guess I'm not to be a party pooper, but you know, sort of reminded that Gramsci wrote those words from a fascist fascist <laughs> prison in 1930. Uh, right. And if you look at you know what a, what happened in uh, Brazil, for example, the other day, it's uh, a little on the discouraging side.
1: You mean the January eighth, like pro Bolsonaro thing? Yeah. Correct. Correct. Yeah, I mean, there's always reasons to be discouraged when it comes to labor. Like it's never a super happy story. And when I talked to workers from the beginning of my book a year later, when I was finishing it up, they would say, they always said, look, we were last year's heroes, this year's zeros, or people forgot about us. And that totally happened. Um, You know, the question is, is there like a lingering moment in organized labor that's trying to sort of keep the threat alive? And I think there is like, we're going to see this year, like UPS might strike. FedEx might strike those, those things, you know, if a 10,000 Starbucks is shut down tomorrow, they go on strike. Like you and I won't get our Java chip frappuccinos, but like for a couple of days, but whatever. When UPS goes on strike and shuts down the logistics sector. Well, that's different. And those, that kind of stuff is in the air right now. So I think that, um, you know, it's not totally um, a downer story. And there's, you know, reasons to, if you sort of know where to look to look for things that might be, you know, might provide an interesting kind of future picture.
0: Right. So on that promising note, I want to bring this to a close. Thanks very much for a fascinating conversation. That's it for today's episode. I want to thank Jamie McCallum of Middlebury College and once of the CUNY Graduate Center for sharing his insights about the labor movement today. Uh, in the post-pandemic sort of, we think, post-pandemic period. Um, Look for us on the New Books Network and remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Osvaldo Mina Aguilar for his technical assistance and to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song, International Horizons, as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpey saying thanks for joining us and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons.